Coming up, Super Bowl week has arrived. I'll dissect the 56th edition of the biggest sporting event of the year and everything that encompasses it. Armageddon is here for Major League Baseball as the stalemate continues with pitchers and catchers targeted to report for spring training in Arizona and Florida as of next week. But with a deal not in place and certainly doesn't look like for the foreseeable future, what could possibly be done at this point? The NBA trade deadline is just three days away. Who will make a deal between now and then? <clears throat> James Harden for Ben Simmons, I might add. The NHL begins its second half now that the All-Star game is behind them. Get ready for another jam-packed, fast-paced sports talk podcast party for your earbuds and speakers. But first, this message. What has happened to my good people? Thank you so much for passing by to listen to me wax poetic as I talk about anything and everything that's happening in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm on all available platforms. You can also go to the website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. All I want to do is increase the visibility of this podcast, so please throw me a few stars, write a review. It will go a long way into getting the word out. Even take a screenshot, send it to your friends, send it to me on social media. I'm more than happy, willing, able, and open to get your feedback on what it is that you enjoy most about the J Reels podcast. So with that being said, let's hit it. The J Reels podcast begins in five, four, three, two, one. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The sports rebel without a pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's well, feeling fantastic and excellent spirits as we're already a week into February and as we get set for a super Sunday, but then comes you know what. I'll get into that momentarily as you've come to the right place to listen to in-depth analysis Unapologetic opinions, incredible sports talk for the casual or diehard fan as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me for now 237 episodes, I welcome you guys and gals back. It is a Monday, February the 7th in the year of our Lord 2022. The J Reels What's the Deal segment, what to expect on this podcast is as follows. The All-Star break is in the NHL's rearview mirror. Now they can concentrate on making up a ton of these games that were lost early on due to COVID over the next couple of weeks. I'll get into a second half preview and look back at the first half as teams will start to crank it up in hopes of securing spots in the postseason. I'll touch on that as well as what's happening in the association because the trade deadline is this coming Thursday. Who may end up where as teams search for reinforcements to put their teams in good position for a deep playoff run this spring? There's already been a couple of trades over the past week, but the big news coming out of Brooklyn, and although they'll deny it, but James Harden could be on the move for one Ben Simmons. So you know there's a lot to unpack there. I'll touch on everything that's happening as well as the Nets because they're in a free fall as we currently speak. 
eight games in a row that they've lost. Is it time to push the panic button out in Brooklyn? I'll get into that as well as, speaking of panic buttons, now is where the players and owners are going to be eyeball to eyeball in a furious standoff as things are starting to get testy in negotiating a new collective bargaining agreement. Where do we stand in what would be a week before pitchers and catchers? And the big mistake that could lie ahead if a deal isn't completed in the next month. All that to get to, including my hero and zero of the week. Before I begin, I have a little mea culpa and an apology to all of you for my last podcast, episode 236 last week. Because... In retrospect, and this was throughout the course of the week, after I put up the podcast Monday, Tuesday, it just wore on me, and I know I probably should have posted a social media message to put out this apology to state that last week's podcast wasn't as laser-focused, it wasn't a textbook, down-and-dirty J-Reels podcast that you've come to know and love here over the last, whatever it may be, week, months, years, as long as you've been following me. There were things that I left on the table when it came to strategy with both the AFC and NFC title games last Sunday night, in particular with the Rams 49er game. Obviously, there were situations where even Sean McVay that I detailed, but there were a couple things that I missed out on, as well as Kyle Shanahan not going for it on fourth down where he elected to punt late in the game. Also, in the Bengal Chief game, how my scoring summaries were a little bit out of sequence. The touchdown that was right before the half for the Bengals, I said it was at the start of the third quarter. Just a jumbled mess, and even worse, to make matters and put the icing on the tombstone, so to speak. Not truly getting into the fabulous comeback by Rafael Nadal. Not only did he win the Australian Open, as we all know, but he was down 0-2, down 2-3, and love 40 in the third set to complete that furious turnaround and winning his 21st major tournament. All of that, including... Breaking down the Hero of the Week where I talked about Joel Embiid paying the fine that was levied for the double technicals between he and Pelicans guard Jose Alvarado where last week twice I said Alvarez and then later had come to know that his last name was Alvarado and he's a Brooklyn kid I might add so it's not as if there's a guy that just fell off of the face of the earth somewhere in the Midwest. No offense to the people out there in that region but because he's pretty much in my neck of the woods and how I did not say his name correctly the first couple of go-arounds, that's just a complete and utter embarrassment on my part. So, because of my sloppy, lackluster, and underwhelming performance, and being able to sit on it for a week, and I understand, again, I should have posted something on social media just to take ownership of that, but I'm here to do that now. So again, I apologize for not holding up my end of the deal. But rest assured, you know I'm always about to come correct, direct, and in full effect. Not only... In the realm of sports, but also in the realm of accountability. So for that, my friends, I'm sorry. I'm glad you stopped by. I thank each and every one of you for your continued and unwavering support and for being here to listen to what it is I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. So with that being said, let's get this sports podcast party started. And we'll start off with this theme before we get to the Super Bowl. Because this will segue right into that. Because these next six days... You're going to see a 1,000 features on Joe Burrow, probably another 2,000 on Sean McVay. I bet you'll get a ton of information on SoFi Stadium, the site of Super Bowl 56, that you'll be tempted to get a degree on landscaping and architecture. And rightfully so, because that place is gorgeous. It makes Jerry's World down in Dallas 
looked like a playpen. And I've been to AT&T Stadium. And it's a beautiful stadium. It's ginormous. It looks like a spaceship from the outside. But with the pond outside of the stadium, the LED rooftop, the Oculus scoreboard, which makes the one in Atlanta look like an iPad. And I get it that the structure in Atlanta and that Mercedes-Benz Stadium, it's pretty much attached to the roof where no matter where you're sitting, you'll have a bird's eye view of scores, of highlights, of replays, things of that nature. But I'm sure for the football fan and being able to watch a lot of these games here in the postseason, especially the two at home at SoFi where you see the scoreboard and obviously the stadium is about 100 or so feet down into the ground to where the upper deck is pretty much just one escalator ride to the top. I mean, everything about the stadium, I mean, how could you not like from what you see, not only on TV, so imagine what it's like in person. But with all that being said, by this time next week, with the Super Bowl coming and going, and obviously we'll recap that a week from today, but we will then head into Sports Dead Zone number one as I like to call it, as we'll have a month before Selection Sunday in college basketball. Who knows what the baseball landscape will be like at that time. And we'll be that closer to the end of the hockey and basketball seasons, which I must honestly say is flying by like it's no one's business. This is one year, and look at what's happened with hockey with all the games having to be rescheduled, postponed due to COVID. But their respective seasons have actually gone by pretty quickly. But watch, come February 14th and beyond... It'll be a thing where it's like molasses and it'll be an interminable end to both of the fall and winter sports. And I get it that no one hasn't been wrapped up in the NBA and the NHL as much, uh, especially the National Hockey League, because the casual fans probably saying, are they still playing hockey? And even though they had the All-Star game this weekend, for those who cared or were interested, but obviously there are some sports and storylines to get to, which will lead us off on the right note here on this podcast so absorb these next six days I know it's going to be ad nauseum ad infinitum with all the media night tonight down in SoFi or I don't even know where they're going to hold the media night I would sure it'd be in the stadium but embrace enjoy these final six days leading up to the Super Bowl because after that it's going to be a big drop off so with the final two Podcasts of the NFL season here which will start off with football before we get to the draft and obviously training camp and a football season that will begin sometime in September because this one here the bulk of it's going to be about the NFL and obviously a lot of the stuff that's happening with the head coaching positions throughout the league of course we have the pomp and circumstance as I mentioned tonight with the media night which used to be on Tuesday, it used to be Tuesday morning, but now the NFL has to make a spectacle out of everything, as we know. So we have that to deal with, and then obviously everything leading up to 6.30 p.m. on Sunday. The Super Bowl parties, both teams, especially the Bengals. Now, I believe they arrived in L.A. last night. I don't know if they maybe even arrived this morning, considering media night is later today, but I would think that they're already nestled into their headquarters there somewhere in Southern California. While the Rams... Let's face it, it's been California dreaming for them because they've been sleeping in their own beds, not having to get on a flight, being familiar with their surroundings as they embark on week two of the comforts of Southern California living. But with all that said now, we could delve into this game, we could delve into the storylines. We talked a little bit about last week, Bengals, Rams, the first time that the Bengals have been in this position in 32 years, and the Rams looking to win a Super Bowl for the first time in 23 years 
So you have that to look forward to. The head coaches with Sean McVay going up against Zach Taylor. Zach Taylor, the old quarterback's coach, was on that Super Bowl team in 2018 before he left to go to Cincinnati and take the head coaching job there. We know about Andrew Whitworth, the longtime Bengal offensive tackle, now the left tackle and at 40 years of age for the Rams. NBC covering the game with Chris Collinsworth, the former Bengals, so you know he's got to play down the middle. Not that he's ever been a homer, and not that we've seen the Bengals in primetime, especially on a Sunday night in quite some time, but you wonder how much Collinsworth is going to be invested in this game. Of course, it's a Super Bowl, but he has the team that he played for there, so that's something to keep your antenna up once the game begins and obviously it takes place. And with the Rams being, I believe last time I checked it was three and a half and maybe four right now. And I'm not a gambling man, so I don't know. But the Rams are favored. It is in their home building. Back-to-back years where we've had the team that plays its games in its building. Last year, Tampa and the game at Raymond James. And of course, the Rams here at SoFi. So you wonder whether or not there's going to be any home field advantage. And I'll get to that in a little bit. But the AFC is the home team. So the Bengals have elected to wear their black uniforms. I believe with the white pants and the Bengal pinstripe. And then you'll have the Rams wearing the white with the gold pants. So if you're into that, that's something that you'll see come kickoff or right before then. But with all these storylines that we could get into, as far as the game itself, and we could talk about all these different keys and the matchups and this and that, but I'll I'll go a little bit in depth on a few different angles when we look at this, and I know the first thing that comes to mind is the Cincinnati Bengal offensive line versus the Ram defensive line. Because that's going to be critical for not only the success of the Bengal offense, in particular their ground game and having to try to run it between the tackles with Aaron Donald there and of course Leonard Floyd, but also in the pass protection game when it comes to Joe Burrow. If you remember... Two weeks ago in the divisional round where the Titans racked up nine sacks against the Bengals, but then last week only gave up one. So you got to wonder, which offensive line is going to show up here in Super Bowl 56? And it's going to be critical in order for this game to either be competitive or it could be a blowout. So that is, to me, the number one storyline as far as the game goes, whether or not the Bengal offensive line is going to match up to Aaron Donald and company. Now, you would expect Jalen Ramsey, he's going to be matched up against Jamar Chase. I'm sure he's going to bounce around. Who knows? Chase, as we saw in the championship game, did not have much of an imprint as far as his explosiveness and him racking up big numbers. Yes, he did have a touchdown, but he didn't have the electrifying plays. He didn't have the home run hitting plays that you saw there in the regular season and even there a little bit in the Titan game. But... The trenches is what's going to be the big factor, but to me, more so Bengals O-line to Ram D-line, because the other way around, yes, we could look at an old Andrew Whitworth. We could also look at Trey Hendrickson, the defensive stalwart on the line there for the Bengals, who was pretty much nicked up toward the end of the year, had a concussion. He played hurt in the championship game, but how he's going to play and being the anchor of that defensive line could be huge as far as the Ram running game, which is not much, even though Cam Akers has made a contribution coming back from that Achilles injury, but still, I'm sure the defensive coordinator for the Bengals isn't staying up all night wondering what the Ram rushing attack is going to be like. 
But with the way the trenches are, it's going to be more so focused and spotlighted on the Bengal O-line, if you ask me. So that's number one. Number two, and this is one which kind of goes under the radar, but the special teams, in particular the kickers. You have the rookie Evan McPherson who's breaking records all over the place and has been clutch and money throughout the regular season and here in the playoffs. And then you have Matt Gay who, yes, he in his own right did push the Rams to the NFC Championship game by getting that last second field goal in Tampa. But McPherson, and I get it, he's been riding this hot wave. You'd only hope if you're a Bengal fan, this is not the time where he starts to cool off. But that could be a factor here when it comes to not only extra points, but also field goals, because as we all know, and obviously points will be at a premium, but when you have an opportunity to get that big kick, whether it's before the half, whether it's in a crucial point of the game, or let's say if it does come down to the final seconds, you want to make sure that you have the edge at kicker. And right now you'd have to say that the Bengals have a significant advantage over the Rams. Matt Gaze, you saw him miss the field goal there last week. Actually came up short, which led to the field goal by Robbie Gould right before the half, which was something that I didn't mention as far as last week. Sean McVay, that coaching decision, why he chose to elect to kick a field goal there where the Niners had the momentum going into the locker room, kicking a field goal at the buzzer right there at the end of the first half. But that's one thing that may not come into play early on in the game. Or even at the midway point of the game. But it's something you got to keep an eye on. Because McPherson has been on such a roll. And he's just been clutch. No other way to put it. And Matt Gay is a guy that. Unlike the previous kicker in a one Greg Zerline. Greg the leg. Where you knew that he could make a big kick. Where you knew that he was a guy that. Yes. With a lot of these kickers. They can be hit or miss. But for the most part here over the last several years. It seems like kickers. No matter how far the distance is. They seem to come up big, but Matt Gay is a guy that mm, you may have to put a little bit of a question mark next to his name on whether or not he's going to be able to come up in a big spot. So that's something that we're going to have to keep an eye on. And then the other thing is too, now we haven't seen it pretty much with Zach Taylor here in this postseason. He's 3-0 to start off his coaching career in the playoffs. He's pressed all the right buttons. He's made all the right moves. And I'm not going to say that the spectacle of the Super Bowl, now he's going to shrink But remember what we saw there a few years ago with Sean McVay, and again he went up against the great Belichick. But McVay came up very short in that game where when you think about it, that was all Wade Phillips and his master plan on how he just slowed down the Patriot offense. And then with Goff and some of the, and granted Goff takes his blame and a lot of it for their foibles and for them not even being competitive offensively in the game, but McVay took a big hit in that game And now, not to say that this is going to happen to Zach Taylor, but you got to wonder, going up against his mentor, the guy that's groomed him here to be in this league, and McVay, I'll get to him in a second, but you also have to think about whether or not Taylor has it in him to throw out the challenge flag at a bad time, or to not punt when he should have kicked a field goal, or vice versa. Those things are going to come into play here with a young coach. And granted, he's done everything right here so far in this postseason. But that's something that you're going to have to keep in mind here. And the same for McVay. Because as we saw last week in the championship game, for all of his boy wonder 
attributes and the accolades that he's received, this young coach, he's dynamic, he's this, he's that. Thankfully, he made it out of that game alive because I'm sure for the six Ram fans in Southern California, he would have been the fodder of sports talk even today because the game is in their building, because of what, how he imploded, the decisions that he made, the stupid challenges that he threw out, which were mind-boggling. So McVay's going to be on the griddle here too. So that leads into who makes the first or even second coaching mistake could be fatal for a team trying to win a Super Bowl. And I get it. We could look at, all. Oh, we could talk about Matthew Stafford and how he's going to play and if he throws that interception late, his body language. Eh, we could talk about that, but that's neither here nor there. When I'm looking at storylines of this game alone, I'm looking at it more from an intangible perspective. And yes, we could talk about the first thing I mentioned with the Bengal offensive line. That's not really an intangible thing. That's something that could factor and loom large in this game. But between the special teams and not only that, but having these two young coaches in the game and you would think McVay would have learned by now, but as we saw just last week against the Niners, he's pretty much clueless when it comes to clock management, when it comes to game situations, things of that nature where it could just blow up in his face. And that's something we're going to have to keep in mind. And I like how Troy Aikman even put that in the pregame last week. And this was more about the players, not necessarily the coaches, but I'm going to pretty much push it to these coaches here at this point because it's not necessarily who makes the big play. It's not necessarily who gets the big interception or the turnover. It's who makes the mistake. And yes, I get it. The turnover is a mistake. Understandably so. But more so from a coaching perspective because it's not as if you have Andy Reid and Lord knows he has his laundry list of peccadillos here in the postseason, but it's not as if you have the big coach going up against the big coach or the long tenure coach and the reputable coach going up against the all-time winning coach. You don't have that here. You have a guy that's had some great success here early on in his career, two Super Bowl trips in five years, but other than that, not much to show for it, where Zach Taylor, yes, he got the quarterback that he needed coming in from LSU, first time in the playoffs, he's swept right through, and now he's on the big stage. So, to me, that's something that we're going to really focus and zero in on because we could talk about turnovers and field position and penalties and discipline and all that, but the coaches... As we've seen time after time after time, they always seem to come up small, especially in big spots. And it's either going to be who's going to be the one to overcome that or make the right decision or who's going to be the person that's going to make the poor decision and end up costing them a Super Bowl. As far as the home field advantage, I don't know if that's going to be the case here. I'm sure you're going to probably get a lot of Ram fans in the building because of where the game's being played. Last year, you couldn't really get a sense of that because I believe there were only, what, a third of the building was full in Raymond James. And you can't really get the full effect of the crowd going crazy. Yes, when Tampa scored, I'm sure you heard the stadium loud. But again, not going to have the same impact as it would now. But let's see. You don't expect the Bengal contingent to come in. It's not as if the Rams were playing, let's say, the Patriots in the Super Bowl where obviously they have a following or even the Steelers, which they have a huge following. So you don't have to worry about a 50-50 or maybe even 
a 60-40 nod to the AFC team going up against the Rams in this situation, but you wonder, the feeling of the building, and we know a lot of the attendees there are executives, are network executives, league executives, family, etc., but will there be a home field advantage for the Rams here remains to be seen. Do I think there will be? I think there may be a slight one, but I don't think it's going to be anything that's like, wow, I can't believe it. This is really a home game for the Rams. So we'll have to keep our eyes on that. As far as the game itself, it's easy to look at this postseason and say, oh, it's going to be a close game. And not to say that the last six games are going to be indicative of the Super Bowl, because watch us get a dud here. Watch the Rams come out flying, the Bengals, maybe a little bit of nerves. Joe Burrow, who is as cool as the other side of the pillow, but again, this is the big stage. The Bengals have not been here. The Rams, a lot of people on that roster could say that they've been in a Super Bowl, that they know what it's like to go through a Super Bowl week and the preparation and everything that leads up to this game. So, we can look at that, but how I see this game playing out, I said last week, take the over, and I believe it was 50, and I don't know if that's moved since then. I can see this being an offensive type of game. I can't see the Bengals, and granted, the Bengals, as we've seen here, now the Titans aren't anything to sneeze at. We get it. It's Ryan Tannehill. Okay, fine. The Raiders, they have some good offensive weapons. They pretty much had the lead throughout the course of the game. Excuse me, until the Raiders had that final drive and where they pretty much put it in the shadow of the goal line before Jermaine Pratt intercepted the ball there in the final seconds to secure the win for the Bengals. And then obviously last week, 21 points and three straight drives by Kansas City. And then it's almost as if they shut the lights off after that. Give credit to the Bengal defense, understood. But I can see this being a game... Obviously, the weather's not going to be a factor. The surface is going to be pretty much a track for the most part. The Rams on paper, I believe, are the better team. I can't even say that they have the better quarterback. Now, Stafford has played very well here this postseason, but you can't knock anything that Joe Burrow has done. I mean, the guy has been ice water in his veins. And they have... A better running back, Joe Mixon, is better than anything what the Rams have. Their receiving core arguably matches up well against the Ram receiving core, and that's with Cooper Cup, who's an all-pro. We know about Odell Beckham Jr. Van Jefferson's a decent third guy. You want to throw in, I don't know if Tyler Higby's going to be in the game, but you want to throw in the kid that uh, chipped in at tight end last week, Kendall Blanton. All right, throw that in there, but Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd, that's a pretty stout trio if you ask me. The defense for the Bengals, not spectacular. Not a lot of household names. It's not as if you have Von Miller, Jalen Ramsey, Aaron Donald as you see for the Rams, but they've been able to get the job done. As we saw there against Kansas City, even against Tennessee, I get it, not a lot of Derrick Henry, but that was more the coaching of Vrabel. But they've done very well here. And again, nobody's going to confuse them with the fearsome foursome or the purple people leaders, the steel curtain, doomsday defense, etc. But give them credit. They're here for a reason. How I look at this game, I see the Rams winning 
And part of it is, is because of the prediction that I made at the start of the year. I predicted this game, Rams-Bills with the Rams winning the Super Bowl. And I got to stick with the Rams just from that regard. I'm not going to flip-flop here. Again, we're talking about accountability and even credibility. I'm not going to go ahead and just all of a sudden turn the coin around and be like, oh, it's going to be the Bengals. They're riding high, the magic carpet ride, etc." Yes, and I'll get to the Bengals in a minute. But because of that, and I think being at home, which could be a detriment. Now, we didn't see that with Tampa Bay last year. As they went on to, what was it, 31-9 to was the final score? And part of me thought last year that because the game was at home, comforts the whole nine, that they could easily rest on their laurels knowing that they're not sitting in a hotel, which I think that they did toward the latter part of the week. And I would think that the Rams would be smart enough to put themselves in a hotel. Because being at home and the request for tickets and the attention from a million different directions and taking phone calls and things of that nature, obviously it could be a distraction, especially when you're at home and you're not on the road where you're in a hotel, hunkered and bunkered down, where you don't have to worry about having to drive into your driveway or go home and think everything is hunky-dory where you could easily be a little complacent, despite the fact that this is the biggest game of your life and you're going to be as mentally and emotionally sharp as you possibly could be. But with that said, I think the Rams are going to do just enough. And I would only hope that the experience from Super Bowl 18, I get it that the quarterback's different. And I'm a little bit fearful of Stafford for this reason. If Stafford doesn't get off to a quick start as he has in all these other games, and remember, he threw an interception on the first drive against the Niners where it got tipped. It was a bad pass by him. It got tipped, picked, and then Fred Warner, remember he headbutted him, which was inexcusable. But you would think that could have been the beginning of snakes in the head of Matthew Stafford. That wasn't the case. He bounced back nicely, and obviously we saw what he did from there on out. And almost cost his team with that interception to Jaquiski Tart. But with that being said, I just think the Rams are going to do just enough to win this game. I think this is going to be a competitive game. I wouldn't be surprised if the Rams get off flying and the Bengals get off a little bit slow. I could see the Bengals then making that comeback. I could see... It being tooth and nail. But when it's all said and done, I'm going to say Rams 30, Bengals 22, and that would be two points over the over. As far as the Bengals go, I'm going to say this. I'm going to root, no offense, back to Ram fan, my guy Chris Fitzsimmons, who is one Ram fan who I know who's tried and true for many years. But I am rooting hard for the Bengals. I mean, how could you not? The Bengals have not been in this position, like I said, in 30, I said 32, 33 years. Not only my allegiance to my dear friends and fans who have been on this podcast before who have followed this team through thick and thin, more thin than thick, but for the Bengals to get to this point and they are capable and certainly have every chance to win this game. They may be an underdog, but it's not an overwhelming or even a significant underdog. They can win this game. And the only way they can win this game is that offensive line is going to be critical to me. Because they're going to have to keep Burrow upright and have just a semblance of a running game in order for them to have any success moving the ball, getting downfield, etc. But I think the Bengals definitely have a shot. I'm going to root hard for them. I hope they win. I hope they're victorious. And it's not even a thing of the AFC North because I could care less about that. 
Because if the Ravens or the Cleveland Browns were in this position, I could care less. I'd hope they lose 100 to nothing. So it's not an AFC North thing. But because it's the Bengals and I haven't had a lot of hatred for them, I think I'm going to probably have to start that considering that they're going to be a lot better than the Steelers over the next, who knows, dozen years. And then I'm going to get my team and my teeth kicked in. And oh, well, that's a whole other story. But with that being said, I'm rooting hard for the Bengals, but I think the Rams will pull it out 30 to 22. Now, there's a lot of other things to get to with the NFL, but just a couple other things regarding the Super Bowl before we move on. Am I interested in the Super Bowl halftime? I got to honestly say, I'm not. I don't know what to expect from this. I know the suits and the powers that be, whether your name is Roger Goodell or whomever else that may be, of the Shield, I'm sure they're going to be beads of sweat as they munch on their vegetable crudités while sipping Pinot Grigio to see what's going to happen here with the Super Bowl halftime because we all know Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Eminem, and Kendrick Lamar, uh, their lyrics are pretty much for the R to NC-17 demographic. And I'm sure they're going to tone it down, but you know there's going to be something. There has to be one thing that's going to come out of here that's going to be controversial, don't you think? And if the NFL is going to chirp and chime and get all worked up about it, all they got to do is look at themselves in the mirror. So as far as the spectacle of halftime itself, I can really care less. Will I watch it? I will, but I'm not going to really get crazy about it. I've never been much of a Snoop fan. I've liked Dr. Dre, especially when he was with NWA, but that's going a million years ago. Mary J, she's from right up the road here in Mount Vernon. Of course, I liked her music over the years, but how much is she going to be a part of this? Remains to be seen. Kendrick Lamar, I like a few of his songs. I know that he won a, I believe, a Pulitzer. God bless him, but who knows? So we'll see what happens there, and you know, I'll have a recap about that next week. As far as the commercials, they have been awful and forgettable over the last, I guess, maybe, what, half a dozen years. It's not the same These commercials sometimes come out of left field. Some of them have been memorable. Some have been that, all right, you'll look back and say, wow, that was pretty cool. But these Dorito commercials and Bud Lights and sometimes you get these GoDaddy commercials, uh, please. I mean, it's just outlandish. And for $7 million, they're going to do whatever it takes besides cursing and, I guess, nudity. But who knows? I'm sure you're going to see more of the same. But that's the deal with the commercials which I won't get too much wrapped up on, but I bring it up because, of course, that's always a topic of discussion the following day. So that's what you have, people, as far as the whole Super Bowl dynamic. And obviously, we'll recap that a week from today. Now, let me get to the Hall of Fame class because that's going to take place this weekend with the finalists. And as I pull up that list here, I'm a hard marker for those who are listening for the first time or don't really know how I am when it comes to grading or let's say my criteria for the Hall of Fame. Now, obviously, I'm not a writer. I'm not one who has any input when it comes to this. But the finalists are as follows. And I'll just run them down and I'll tell you right off the top if I feel they're a Hall of Fame or not. <clears throat> Jared Allen... The defensive end played mostly for the Chiefs, also for the Vikings as well, but then bounced around there toward the end. He was dominant for his time, but off the top of my head, I'm talking about first ballot. He's not in. I don't even believe he's a first ballot Hall of Famer, but, or is on the ballot for the first time. But off the top of my head, is he a Hall of Famer? I'm going to say no. Willie Anderson, offensive tackle, 
I know he played with the Bengals all those years. Who knows? Does he get any type of consideration because the Bengals are in the Super Bowl? And not that that should be a factor in him making it to the Hall of Fame. But is he a guy that is worthy? Well, obviously he's on this list, but because he played on a bunch of bad Bengal teams, do I think that he's a Hall of Famer? Mm, I'm going to say no right now. Rondé Barber, we know his resume. Won a Super Bowl. Been on those Tampa defenses. A ton of interceptions. He's a guy that when you look at the recent cornerbacks that have made it, whether your name is Champ Bailey, Charles Woodson we know is an automatic, but Champ Bailey who had about 50 some odd interceptions where I believe Rondé Barber somewhere around there. If Bailey's in, you would think Barber's going to get in. Tony Baselli, he was dominant for a short time and not for a long time. Does he get in? I don't know. But he's borderline. If you ask me, he's like in that Terrell Davis category of not having the longevity, but he was a dominant force there at left tackle. Leroy Butler, he is not a Hall of Famer. I'm sorry. I know he played all those years in Green Bay, won a title there in the 96 season, but he is not a Hall of Famer. Devin Hester for his dominance as a kick returner. You could see that, but that's all he brings to the table. If he was a dominant receiver as well as a kick returner or even a safety for that matter, because later on in his career he played defensive back, but I can't put him in a Hall of Fame just for that. Torrey Holt, and I'm going to lump Andre Johnson into this. Wide receivers have been going in by the, pretty much by the boatload. Holt has the numbers, but he was in an era with Isaac Bruce, who's in the Hall of Fame, and he's borderline too, although I thought maybe he should have been or was definitely a Hall of Famer. Is Torrey Holt? I can't, not right now. And Andre Johnson, he was dominant too, but does he get in? Do they bring in at least one wide receiver from this class? Maybe he gets in. Sam Mills, may God rest his soul. Small linebacker, diminutive, but he had a heart the size of this planet. Does he get in? Maybe one day, but not now. Zach Thomas does not get in, no way. Richard Seymour is borderline, but he doesn't make it. Reggie Wayne, another guy you could lump in with Andre Johnson and Torrey Holt. I say no. Patrick Willis, another guy. He was dominant, but a short amount of time. Does he get in right away? I say no. Bryant Young, another guy who was dominant for those Niner teams in the mid to late 90s, but his whole body of work, I say no. DeMarcus Ware, that's a tough call because he was a four-time first-team All-Pro, two-time second-team, won a Super Bowl, 138 and a half sacks. I'd probably say yes, but I'd have to probably look a little bit deeper, but I would say yes. So to recap, I would say, and I'm a hard marker, Rondé Barber, I'll say Andre Johnson, and again, he did on a lot of bad Texan teams, I get it. And DeMarcus Ware, those would be the only guys that would go in based on my decision. And it'll be interesting because then next week we'll talk about who made it, and then I'll go through their resume, body of work, how many all pros, because that's how you're going to base it on. Yes, the numbers are sexy, yes, they're gaudy, etc., but to me, when you talk about being the best of your position for X amount of years, that's what's going to go long and far. And for DeMarcus Ware, he's got that six times at least over and four times as being the best linebacker in the league. And if you're a four-time All-Pro in any position, that's going to go a long way as far as making the Hall of Fame. So we'll see how that shakes down and we'll recap that next week. The next thing I want to talk about before we get to the Brian Flores and all these coaching hires, Tom Brady finally made it official Tuesday on his Instagram account. 
And I know there was an uproar for all of New England because in his Instagram post, he had pictures of him in a Buccaneer uniform and talking about the Glazer family who owned the Bucks and the Tampa region, the fans, his teammates, etc. And there was not one iota of a mention about his time in New England, which I believe a couple days later he actually posted. And then the word on the street was that he was going to go back to New England at some point last week, which did not happen, but he was going to sign a contract for one day and then retire as a Patriot. And then I guess at that point he'd have his big press conference and talk about his days in New England, etc. But that was an uproar, which I didn't even follow up or even get into. Yes, is it fodder for sports talk? Absolutely. But eh, you knew his day and time was going to come where he was going to address New England and how much the owner, Bob Kraft, Bill Belichick, all of his teammates throughout the 19 years that he was there or 18, whatever it was, that he was going to give them their just due. But it was interesting because in an interview the night before with Jim Gray, he has his podcast on Sirius XM called Let's Go with Larry Fitzgerald, how he said, oh, it's a process, it's going to take time. I understand that these reports came out, but I haven't made it official. And then here it is, like 16 hours later, he comes out with this Instagram post. So wait a minute, if it's a process, and if he knew 16 hours prior, why didn't he mention it then? And I get maybe he could have, maybe there would have been an inkling or a hint to say, yes, that decision is coming, but it is a process, whatever. He didn't even say that. So I don't want to say he looks like a phony there. He doesn't because he is Tom Brady. He could do whatever he wants, but don't come out and say it's a process. It's going to take a while, whatever. And then the next day, come out with the post saying that, yes, it's been great. It's been fun. Thank you, Tampa. Thank you, NFL And there I go on my high horse off to the sunset. And listen, do I really need to get into Brady's career right now? Like I did with Roethlisberger, which I posted a video about. But even last week, I said six sentences on Roethlisberger and what he did. And Brady, you could argue whether he's the greatest quarterback of all time. I'll say yes because of his accomplishments. And I know that's tough for maybe the Niner fan with Joe Montana, and I get it. He was 4-0 in Super Bowls, never threw an interception, where Brady is 7-3. and But if Joe Montana made it to 10 Super Bowls, you think he's going to go 10-0? Now, I get it. He only played in the games that he did, 4-0, Super Bowls, MVPs, etc. Understood. And yes, you can rank him however you want. But I have to say Brady overtakes that. And it's not because of the passing numbers in the regular season, everything he's done, but... The guy's been money. The guy's been clutch. The guy in his postseason career, and granted, he had Belichick there, but he's 35-12 and 12 in the postseason. 35-12. and 12. There are quarterbacks that have made it to the playoffs for many years. And you have to have a not only a model of consistency, but dominance. And he's had that. And that's something Joe Montana didn't have. And I get it. Joe Montana lost bad playoff games. Same as Tom Brady, he's lost bad playoff games too, but with the league being different now than it was back then, I totally understand. I'm not trying to be a Brady apologist by any stretch, but I'm just saying that if you're going to rank who's the greatest quarterback, if you ask me, I'm going to say Brady's number one. Now, is he the greatest athlete of all time? Let's pipe down there. Is he Babe Ruth? Is he Michael Jordan? Is he Wayne Gretzky? Uh, Let's not get crazy. Does he rank up there maybe in the top 15, 20? Does he even crack the top 10? Mm. I mean, that's for debate. But as far as quarterback, there's no doubt about it. To me, it's TB12. 
So that'll be an interesting Hall of Fame ceremony where you have both Brady and Roethlisberger coming out and that should be fascinating to say the least about what they're going to say in early August over in Canton, Ohio. So we'll see how that uh, turns out later in the summer and we move from there. Now let's get to what the bombshell the NFL took place last week as far as news off the field and that was this Brian Flores suing the NFL for many different accounts in particular the racism that he's alleged with this whole process that to me has a lot to do maybe with the football giants but then you also had a scenario where two years ago in his first year as the Dolphin coach where the owner Stephen Ross was offering $100,000 for every loss down the stretch so they could have a high draft pick so they could select a quarterback in the draft which they desperately needed and of course Flores balked at that he said as far as his integrity there's no way he was going to do that of course the owner Stephen Ross has vehemently or maybe not vehemently but he has come out to say that those accusations are false the deal with the Broncos and where he was being interviewed for the Bronco head coaching job, but then, and this was going back to 2019, where John Elway showed up hungover, and guess he was drunk, and then the Broncos refuted that with this long statement, and how Elway was disappointed with the assessment made by Flores and the accusations, and how he said that there was no way that was possible, those are wrong accounts on so many fronts, And even the hierarchy of the Broncos, they came out and said that that is not the case. And they certainly have come back with a rebuttal when it comes to those accusations by Flores. And then going back to the Giants, who knows that he said, he said with the scenario regarding their practices, the Giants as far as hiring a coach to where Bill Belichick had sent a text to Brian Flores saying congratulations on the giant job, but then it was an accident to where Belichick said, oh, I'm sorry, the job didn't go to you. It went to Brian Dable. So then he wondered why he was even brought in if they knew that Dable was the leading candidate to be the head coaching or to have the head coaching job of the Giants. So all these things were starting to factor in and even the Giants came out with a statement saying that wasn't the case. And then they had their timeline, which said that they had not signed a contract to Dable, that they did look at Flores as a potential candidate to be the head coach of the Giants and how everything did fall into place to where Dable was a guy that they hired after that text was sent from Belichick to Flores. Just a whole big mess to where Flores actually went on the Get Up show with Mike Greenberg on ESPN and came out with all this. He had his representation in front of him. And the only thing I could say is, and I'll break down each scenario, Quickly, with the Dolphins, now Stephen Ross, he's been a terrible owner there. There's no ifs, ands, buts, maybes about it. Is that something that I wouldn't be surprised that Ross did? Absolutely not. Even though there have been the reports of Stephen Ross saying that that was not the case. There's no way that I even proposed that type of offer to Coach Flores. But to me, that seems a little bit more plausible than the other things. And... If that's the case with Ross, he should be out as owner. Uh, Please, that's cut and dry. Now, they have to have evidence. They have to have some, whether it's a text thread, email, or a discussion that was recorded in order to make it stick. 
But again, it's a he said, he said thing. We're never going to know until we have actual proof that not only the situation with Ross took place, but obviously the encounter with the Broncos and the Giants as well. As far as the Broncos go, again, does Flores have video of Elway half asleep during this interview process or stumbling into the conference room or wherever they were quartered off to have this interview take place? Or was the scenario? Was he slurring his words? Was well, we need to see that or hear that or have some sort of evidence to back that up? Because if the Broncos and Elway have said no way, this please, we thought highly of Brian and we're shocked by these allegations. Then Flores has to come correct and say, "Oh no, this is what happened," or "I saw it with my own eyes," or his agent, or whatever it is. They have to back that up. And with the Giants, I understand with the text, but if the Giants have this timeline to say that, yes, we reached out to Brian Dayball, but we didn't offer the job to him until after or whatever it was, and that we saw or had the process with Flores at this time, if it all makes sense, then Flores has to come out and say, oh no, I have it this way. You can't come out and say all these different things if you can't back it up. And I get it that the league right now is under siege when it comes to the hiring of minority candidates, not only in the front office, but especially with the head coaches. And as we've seen here over the past week where Byron Leftwich pulled himself out of the running in Jacksonville to where they hired Doug Peterson. Now, I don't know what was going on there. Who knows? Maybe from what we've heard or read that Leftwich wanted to bring his own guys and the owner, Shad Khan, balked at that. And as we've seen here, not only just with his tenure in Jacksonville, but even in San Francisco, that the GM, Trent Baalke, who's no saint, and who knows how long he's going to be part of the fabric there in Jacksonville. But with Leftwich pulling out and Bienemy, the offensive coordinator, Eric Bienemy, not getting a job here over the last few years, and now discussions are being ramped up in Houston to where even Brian Flores was still a candidate to be a head coach down there with everything that's gone on the past week. But now they're talking to Lovey Smith, the old, well, one-time Chicago Bear coach. And of course, the Tampa coordinator back in the day when he was under Tony Dungy. So now we're starting to get this influx of coaching candidates that are minorities to where the Dolphins hired Mike McDaniel, the offensive coordinator of the Niners. And even though McDaniel, and I got to call it as I see it, people, even though McDaniel refers to himself as biracial, but upon first glance, you can't even tell. And that's not to knock him or knock his race or where he's from, whatever, but you got to call it as you see it. And he can be proud, and that's great. And all for it. If he feels that, hey, I'm part this, part that, I... Of course, take on my heritage, just like I take on whatever her, his parents, whether they're half this, half that, and I didn't really get to see, because once that hire was made yesterday, I took a look and saw, and I said, okay, fine, and I probably should have done a little bit more homework then, and I get that. But again, when you look at Mike McDaniel walk down the street, you're not going to think that, oh, okay, it's a whole different ball game when you're looking at some of the other candidates that have been out there that I've mentioned they're not going to be confused with the one Mike McDaniel. And then the Vikings are expected to hire Kevin O'Connell, 
the offensive coordinator for the Rams after the Super Bowl next week. So all that talk about Jim Harbaugh, where Harbaugh is going to stay at Michigan now, so you don't have to worry about the Wolverine fan, doesn't have to worry about Harbaugh jumping ship to the shield, to the NFL. But you do have to wonder these practices, and in particular the Rooney rule, and I'm sure the owners are abiding by it. But are they abiding by it just by bringing in the one candidate? Or are they bringing in several candidates in order to fill that position at head coach for said organization? That's what we have to look at here. Because the owners and GMs, they could just bring the one person in and that's it. All right, we washed our hands. We met the quota. Maybe they need to reevaluate and maybe even reinstitute that. The whole part of that is to bring in candidates that are of minority backgrounds and in particular this case African American but what we've seen here so far with guys like and no offense Matt Eberflus going to Chicago we could talk about all these guys whether Kevin O'Connell if he's going to get the job there in Minnesota Doug Peterson I get it they wanted to hire a Super Bowl winning coach and he's been a year removed from his job where Jacksonville wants to go in that direction an offensive coach to Groom the quarterback there in Trevor Lawrence. All right. And why didn't they go the route of Eric Bieniemy or some of these other guys? I don't know. But that's what the league's going to have to crack down. And they did say that they're going to crack down on that moving forward. And rightfully so. But this has been a whole mess. Who knows what's going to happen with Flores here. He's putting his neck out. And obviously his career is on the line. Because if a lot of this stuff comes out later on that this was all baseless, that he was just trying to cause a firestorm, and I'm not going to say for no reason, he does have some valid arguments whether it comes to the practice of organizations trying to hire African-American talent to be the head coach of a team. He could say that, but all the other stuff, if it happens to come across as baseless, or doesn't have a leg to stand on with some of these other accusations, then who knows if he's ever going to see a head coaching job ever again as long as he lives. Could he be back in the league? I would think so. But as far as being a head coach, I'm sure he just pretty much did himself in depending on how the end result of this process goes. Because remember, he has sued the NFL here. You know, it's not as if he's just complaining or bitching and moaning about what's going on here in the league. No, he's thrown down the gauntlet and you know the NFL has I'm sure lawyers that uh, they'll be able to get themselves out of a straight jacket in a phone booth 100 feet on the water in the Hudson River so we will definitely take a look at that as the days and weeks move on and one last thing and I'm sure I'm probably in the minority when it comes to this But I do like the new Washington football team nickname. The Commanders. I get it. It's going to be unpopular with a lot of people. And they're going to have to now recite a whole new name. People that just got accustomed to the Washington football team now have to say the Washington Commanders. I know you're going to get the idiot out there that's going to still say Redskins. It's the Commanders. So I like the way it rolls off the tongue. Washington Commanders. I like that they kept the colors. Although the road whites seem a little bit off to me. They look like the old Falcon jerseys of years ago in the 80s. The alternate black one I could do without. Uh, Please, these black jerseys for these teams that have no business wearing black. 
Granted, if you're the Steelers, if you're a team that has black in your uniform, trying to think what other team wears black in the league. No, not the Ravens with their alternate jerseys or even the Eagles for that matter. I mean, ugh, that's just an abomination. I hate to see it. But if your team has black in your uniform, then I understand. No problem. Represent. But to have an alternate black jersey, uh, you can throw that in the garbage and light it up for all I care. But Washington Commanders, I'm here for it. Hopefully that their tenure will go off as smooth and not as bad as the way the former name of their team has gone. And that's pretty much been for the last two and a half decades. So, All right, so now let's turn our attention to the association because things will start to heat up this week, especially on the trade front because... This Thursday, I believe by 4 p.m., maybe 3 p.m., but usually it's 4 o'clock, will be the trade deadline. And there have been a couple of trades so far. The trade yesterday by the Cavaliers bringing in Karis LeVert from Indiana, which was a big move. Indiana sends back the expiring contract of Ricky Rubio. If you remember, he tore his knee earlier this year. So that, and they sent a few picks. I don't know where they fall as far as the draft. This upcoming year, I believe one of it's a lottery-protected first-round pick, and I'm sure there's also a couple of other picks involved. But just like I said last week, you wonder what the middling teams are going to do here. Now, of course, they're not going to go out and get the blockbuster guy. You know, you don't expect the Memphis Grizzlies to go out and try to get a Ben Simmons or a James Harden or a guy of that ilk. They're going to get a guy that's in the middle rung or maybe even slight below, or an underrated guy like Karis LeVert, who will step in there. He's averaged 18 points a game this year. Good offensive player. Will fit right in with the Cavs and what they're doing with the head coach there, J.B. Bickerstaff. So that was a move that you look at and say, ah, is it going to put them to the NBA Finals? Of course it isn't. But can they win around? Maybe even go, dare I say, to an Eastern Conference Final? Is the move for Levert going to do that? Maybe not, but guess what? It's not going to hurt. And we all understand that there's some luck involved. Maybe a player gets hurt along the way, as we saw last year with Kyrie twisting his ankle, and then, of course, James Harden tweaking that hamstring and not really playing to the level that we've seen James Harden play over the years. But anything can happen. So the Cavaliers made a very shrewd move, and then the Clippers got Robert Covington and Norman Powell from Portland as they shipped Eric Bledsoe, Justice Winslow, a second round pick down the road in Keon Johnson. So they get a good player in Covington that could play defense. Norman Powell, another intangible guy. And I get that we still haven't seen the likes of Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, but there are some reinforcements there for Tyron Lue that in hopes, and based on the reports for the process of a one Kawhi Leonard is not looking pretty good as I believe there's been a setback as far as his recovery goes, but those are just a couple of the trades that were made last week. But now you're starting to get some percolation, as I'll call it for the first time. You're getting some rumors coming out of Brooklyn over the last week, and even though they were shot down last week and even shot down over the weekend as far as James Harden goes, but there is a match that could be made In a trade, as I mentioned the other guy's name just a short time ago, and one Ben Simmons. And Steve Nash over the weekend said, it's not the case. He's not on the trading block. We're not going to trade James Harden. And I can understand why they don't want to do that. 
One is because the uncertainty of Kyrie Irving and his status, especially when it gets to April, May, and June. Number two, Kevin Durant is going to be out probably until after the All-Star break with the knee injury that he suffered a month ago. So with the uncertainty of Irving down the road and for the near future with Kevin Durant, they need to have a guy like James Harden, although he's not as Houston Rock itself, let's face it. But we know he's still a dynamic offensive player and he could still put up numbers, etc. But there's no way that the Nets are thinking about parting with him because I think that's those two players are a huge influence as to why they're not putting him on the block. But here's the other side of the coin where Harden, with all the rumblings that we've heard, whether it was with the coaching staff, with the front office, the situation with Kyrie Irving, and now that we're hearing recently about him not wanting to re-sign with Brooklyn, although he said that, yes, he's willing to sign a long-term deal, but for what cost? Three years at $161 million, which I believed was rumored the deal that he passed up on because he's never been a free agent. He wants to test the waters. But ever since he's been a member of the Nets, and mind you, when he was traded here, we saw the beer belly, we saw the pounds, we saw the just lack of care when it came to his conditioning. And do you really want to fork over if you're Joe Sy, the owner of the Nets, $50 million a year for a guy to, let's face it, he is on the back nine of his NBA career. I'm not that guy. And I've never been a fan of his, not his play. I've just never been a fan of him being in crunch time. And all you got to do is listen to all the podcasts from the past. In fact, you want to go back in the archives, people? Go back to my very second podcast ever where I talked about James Harden. That's all you need to know. And I pretty much have it littered throughout the course of time when it comes to Harden and how I feel the back of his playoff basketball card doesn't match up to his regular season card. But I'll put that aside. But everything that he's talked about and not wanting to resign and all this other talk, but the match is in Philadelphia because he has a GM that he loves there and Daryl Morey and Morey loves him. He would fit well, you would think, with the pick and roll and playing with Joel Embiid. And not only that, but he could be the man to score as well as Embiid too. But now he doesn't have to worry about the shadow. And not to say that he has, but that's part of the rumblings to where he came to Brooklyn knowing that he wasn't the guy and didn't have to be the guy. And even though in Philadelphia you have to be the guy, but that may be something that he'll be able to take on and shoulder. Where here, because Kyrie has been in and out of the lineup and Kevin Durant has been injured and now all the focus is on me and obviously he's not 100% as far as his basketball shape is concerned that maybe he's like, oh, maybe I want out privately as opposed to it being public here throughout all these reports over the last week to 10 days. So Harden will be a fit in Philly just like Simmons can be a fit in Philadelphia. And everybody knows I am not the biggest Ben Simmons fan. And right, there are some factors that Simmons can flourish here in Brooklyn. One, he does not have to be the man. Two, he could be the defensive stalwart that he had been in Philadelphia and now he's in Brooklyn to go along with Kyrie and Also, Kevin Durant, fantastic. And let's say, in transition, he could be the guy to dish it off to Kyrie, dish it off to Kevin Durant, and away we go. But there's also a big caveat to that. The backcourt of Harden and Kyrie, although we haven't seen it in a gigantic sample, 
But it has worked. Reason being, because Kyrie could score against anybody the way James Harden can. But if you have Ben Simmons as part of your trio, as one of the focal points of your team, when you're in the half-court setting, you might as well have Ben Simmons out to pasture. Because all he's going to do is just stand out in the perimeter and do nothing. It's going to be four and five on the offensive side. When it's usually the other way around when it comes to the offensive player that can't play defense. And unless he's been in the gym or is in the gym now working on a post-up game, working on a mid-range game, and dare I even say a three-point game, he is going to be a liability on the offensive end. So Kyrie's going to want the ball more so on the offensive side than Simmons will. And again, Simmons is going to be pretty much left to being a statue. And that's a problem. And it's just a matter of time before Simmons is like, oh, I need the ball in my hands, whatever it is. And as it is, Durant could also arguably could want the ball more than Kyrie. And Kyrie, you know, he'll defer. Kyrie, the reason why Kevin Durant is there is because of Irving. So even though you have a match because of the contracts, and I think what the Nets want back, they also want uh, Seth Curry. And that's the one asset that they probably don't want to part with. But if Harden is going to be in a deal this week, and even though the Nets have said a thousand times over, no, 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 I'm sure that if all the other stuff that we don't know privately is there, they probably can't wait to get him out on the Amtrak down to Philadelphia. And Simmons could come up this way, and I get it that you're probably going to get Harden, and you're going to have to re-sign him, and it's going to be ooh, another albatross of a contract moving forward. But the Sixers have played well here. And Bede has played like an MVP. And to get Harden in there, who's going to bring instant offense, even if he's not 100% as far as his strength and conditioning goes, but he will be a complete upgrade to what Ben Simmons and Seth Curry combined will ever be. Does he bring you defense? Absolutely not. That's the one drawback. But points, assists, and rebounds, you know Harden got you. Now, you could also say the same, oh, hey, Simmons also brings the rebounds and assists, but yes, in a big spot, where do you see it? (laughs) But the same can be said for Harden too, but that's in the big game. That's where I would worry about if I'm a Net fan or if a Sixer fan, if he does get traded. So who knows? That's going to be the storyline all week with those two guys. Let's see what happens with the middling teams, if they're going to make a move. But all the focus is going to be on James Harden as well as Ben Simmons as to see where they're going to go, if not in separate deals, but for each other. Because the money, the contracts, etc. seem to be the best fit. And then obviously, you have the GM in Philadelphia who loves Harden and vice versa. So we will see how that unfolds. And speaking of the Nets, is it time to push the panic button? Is it time to say, uh uh-oh, the sky is falling out in Kings County? Losers of eight straight. If the season ended today, they'd be in the playing tournament. Because they're currently in the seventh seed in the conference. Now granted, all it takes is just a brief winning streak to get themselves ahead. Now the Raptors are percentage points ahead of the Nets as of right this second. And give it up to the Raptors. They've been in a malaise, it seemed like, the whole year. And now... They are 28 and 23. Nick Nurse, stupendous job there up in Toronto. But it's not as if the, with the Nets being at seven, they're not five, six games behind the sixth place uh, team in the conference. So with the Nets, 
even with this losing streak, even with Durant out and everything that I mentioned here with Kyrie and as well as James Harden, is there cause for concern for the Nets? Right now, I'm going to say no. Now, they, of course, they're not going to end up being 7 through 10. That would be an ultimate shock. You'd feel that they'd be somewhere, I would say, in the top five at best because I would think they will pull away from Toronto and maybe even squeeze past Philadelphia because remember, they're only three games behind them in the conference or in a division two because obviously both the Sixers and Nets play in the same division. But once these guys come back, once they're in the fold and going, they should be all right. Now, if Durant's going to be out any longer or if he re-aggravates that knee or if Harden does go for Simmons, now all bets are off. And of course, we can't forecast that, especially in the next few days with this trade and even down the road past that when it comes to Durant. But I think the Nets will be fine. If Durant comes back and he's 100% and he rides it out to the end, then no problem. I think the Nets will be and put themselves in good position. But until then, I'm not going to start screaming or going crazy or thinking that, oh my God, the Nets are in trouble here. So to me, that's been the one story that a lot of people maybe are blowing out of proportion or looking at it's like, "Mm, well, you never know. I think the Nets will be fine. And again, that's barring either the trade, which brings back Simmons, and obviously the offensive output that they'll lose from Harden translated to Simmons. And then, of course, if Durant's going to be out for any extended period of time. Give it up for my Celtics. They've won five in a row. And actually, they're five games over 500 for the first time this year. Should I be a believer? I still need to see more. I mean, again, and this Celtic team's not going anywhere. They're in eighth place in the conference for a reason. And that's not to try to throw ice cold water on them or to not give them any credit. It's good that they're playing well and that they're showing a semblance of what they can do, but that'll be a team. You want to talk about some reinforcements. Can the Celtics do anything here before the trade deadline to bring anybody some size, some experience, some rebounding, and even a little toughness I'll throw in to maybe... Get them to ascend in the Eastern Conference. So we'll see what happens there. But other than that, the NBA is pretty much the same. I'm not going to go through these records. I'm not going to talk about the Expendables, the Lakers. We know what's going on there and some of these other teams. But that's what we have there with the association. So the trade deadline is going to be big, especially with those two stars in Brooklyn and Philadelphia being the focal point there. As far as the NHL goes... I'll get into this with the All-Star game now coming and going and the break that they got with the Olympics and the NHL players not playing in Beijing right now. But these two weeks are critical for a lot of these teams to make up games. So let's hope that now with the Omicron variant starting to weaken a little bit and cases going down and all that stuff, let's see if the NHL can now get themselves back on track as they start their quote-unquote second half tonight, Carolina at Toronto and the Devils are in New Jersey, just two games tonight in the National Hockey League. But when we take a look at the first half, and we know the first half, a lot of these teams have played past the 41-game threshold. As far as the surprises here throughout the first portion of the season, the two that come to mind, and again, not that I'm following Every drop of the puck and game in and game out, night in, night out, 
when it comes to a couple of these teams. But the one team, and they're right here in my backyard, has to be the Rangers. Now, I understand they were going to take that next step. They were going to take a leap because last year, and I kidded around, I actually picked them to go to the cup final last year, and they didn't even make the playoffs. And there were a little bit of some growing pains there. And obviously, you had the scenario where the former coach, David Quinn, did not do the job. And you had the turnover with the new coach there, Gerard Gallant, who was last the coach of the Vegas Golden Knights. And what they've done here so far, 47 games in, I've been shocked. Now, did I expect them to be competitive? Did I expect them to be a team that was going to be part of the mix in the Eastern Conference? Absolutely. But for them to be tied for first place right now, and understandably so that Carolina does have four games in hand with each team having 64 points, but I never thought this. With all the young players that they've had, the draft picks over the years, the Capococos of the world, the Alexis Lafreniere's, who has not had a good season. I know he's been up and down, but he hasn't been that guy, that number one pick that's just come in and pretty much wrecked the league from the start. That hasn't happened as of yet. You also have Chris Kreider, who's on an MVP flurry, and this was the guy that they were hoping to see for God knows how long. And talk about patience. The organization had more than that, and he's finally paying dividends. So Kreider's been a guy that has thrusted himself into the MVP discussion. So to me, the Rangers have been a big surprise in that regard. Yes, did I expect them to do well this year? Of course, but I'm sure the average Ranger fan or even the diehard, they probably thought that, yeah, we're going to do well this year, but maybe not to the point to where they have 64 points and are atop or at least tied in the Metropolitan Division. The other team I'm going to say, the LA Kings, and it's out west, and again, I'm not watching Kings hockey night and night out. But they were a team that got off to a very slow start, even with the Ducks for that matter. But now the Kings have seemed to get themselves in a the groove. They played very well here. And who knows, watch them fall off like a giant boulder in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. But the Kings give them credit because a lot of people are going to associate them with the cup teams of 2012 and 2014. And remember, that's a long time ago when you think about it. But give it up for the Kings and how they've performed. Now, are they going to be built to last when it comes to the postseason? Obviously, that's going to be a big, giant question mark. But I know for me, and when we look at how they started off their season, they lost seven of their first eight games. And I understand they turned it around by winning seven straight after that, but they have been a model of inconsistency pretty much up until Christmas. And since then, they played very good hockey. Now, granted, they have had a three-game losing streak in between, but they've had stretches where they've won six of seven. They've been able to go on these rolls to where they put themselves in a position where they're two points behind the Vegas Golden Knights. And remember, the early part of the year was all Edmonton and Calgary as they got off to torrid starts, and they've gone backwards since then to where, as we turn to the disappointments, Edmonton, number one, has to be because here's a guy... And Connor McDavid. I don't want to put it all on him. But we know he's been that guy in the league who is, let's face it, with Sidney Crosby, with Alexander Ovechkin, who's on the COVID list, by the way. And I don't know when he's returning, but I'm sure he'll probably return sometime later in the week. But with those guys phasing out as being the face of the league, Connor McDavid is the guy. And their team got off to a tremendous start. And a lot of people thought that 
by them bringing in a guy like Duncan Keith who won all those cups in Chicago and I said it last year they need to have some experience on that team a guy that's going to will this team pass playoff series and get themselves to a cup final and when you have the MVP of the league and a guy who by far if you're the casual sports fan you wouldn't know if he fell on you but in the league itself this was a team that had to make some hay this was a team that had to go deep conference final even Stanley Cup final in order for it to stick and look at where they're at now and again things would change fast maybe they go on a roll maybe the Kings take a step or two back but that's been a disappointing stretch here especially since the start of the new year for the Edmonton Oilers to just go backwards and listen I could easily say that the Islanders and I'm not going to make excuses for them because I get it people can say oh Jay Reels you're an Islander fan you're going to be an apologist for them no matter what Now, they still have a ton of games in hand just in their own division. But time is ticking. And this Islander team, and it's weird because usually we hear the statement of teams being built for the regular season and not for the playoffs. Well, the Islanders are in reverse. The Islanders are a team that if they make it to the postseason, they're a team that a lot of other teams do not want to play. But we have to call it as we see it. The Islanders have had a very disappointing season. And I understand, 13 games on the road to start the season, players in and out with COVID, but you had that with a bunch of other teams. Not having to go out on the West Coast to Western Canada, which is where they're going to start their trip right out of the gate here out of the All-Star break where they're going to go to Vancouver, Seattle, Edmonton, etc. And let's see how they perform there because that's going to be their season. If they can't get out of this stretch, and I believe they start tomorrow night, in Seattle or maybe Wednesday no actually it's going to be in Vancouver Wednesday so they had this respite and they got shut up by the Kraken at home last week which was inexcusable that can't be done especially if you're trying to get yourselves back into this playoff mix but here we go right out of the gate they're going to go to Seattle oh excuse me they're going to go to Vancouver Edmonton Calgary Buffalo Now, they go to Seattle later in the month. I remember seeing Seattle on the schedule, so I thought it was part of this trip. So, right out of the gate, they go to Western Canada and play at Buffalo before coming home, Boston, Montreal, and then having to go back out west. Makeup game at Seattle, San Jose, LA, Anaheim, Colorado. Tough sledding for this on the team. So, we're going to know pretty much by March 1st whether this team is going to be part of the mix Or you could say part of the lottery mix. So that's what we got there. And when we look at the second half of the season, NHL is kind of hard to gauge. You know, it's not like the NBA where you know who the top heavy teams are. And you could say the same for the NHL. We know Tampa's going to be there. We know that Florida has played very well here this year. They're going to be up there. Same for Vegas. Colorado has played well. We could talk about those teams in the NHL, but when we get to the postseason, we all know it's a crapshoot. And a lot of these teams could thrust themselves back into the conference, qualifying for the top eight, and then pretty much from there, it's all bets are off. So are there going to be teams that make a move? Are there going to be teams that are going to go ahead and make that push? Obviously, we'll see. Now, the trade deadline isn't until March 21st, so we have plenty of time between now and then before we can even think about Who's going to get traded where? Who's going to look for a missing link or a couple of pieces to get themselves in a playoff push? But right now, even with this, we get into the second half of the season. 
it's still a little bit too early to tell to see what teams are going to be able to get over the hump, are going to put themselves in good stead in either the East or West. And you know we're going to keep an eye on this. Obviously, with the NFL season coming to a close this coming Sunday, all the attention and focus will be on the fall and winter sports from here on out. And one more note that the Winter Classic for 2023 will be back at Fenway Park. They hosted the game in 2010. That was versus the Flyers. So the backdrop will be Boston, Massachusetts, and of course the Green Monster there for the next Winter Classic game. The other team that the Bruins will host remains to be seen. Obviously the schedule has not come out for next year. So if you want to circle your calendar for January 1st as to where the Winter Classic will be, it will be up in Fenway Park, January 1, 2023. Now, let's get to the baseball here because we're at the point, as I've said, going back to last summer, where Armageddon was coming. And yes, even when the baseball season ended, and I talked about Armageddon then, and We went through November, Thanksgiving. Yeah, there were some discussions there in the early part of December. And then we got into the new year. It was quiet. And then, oh, we had a talk there in the first week of January. Back-to-back discussions. All right, well, at least they're getting together. They're at the conference room table. And they're trying to get the workings of something, of anything, to get a collective bargaining agreement done by the time spring training rolls around. Well, guess what? Pitchers and catchers would start reporting mostly a week from today or more so a week from tomorrow. Do you see a deal coming at any point over the course of the next seven, eight days? I think not. And based on what we saw here last week, where the players had counterproposed to the owners what was happening as far as revenue sharing as far as players and their current terms of service, as you know, six years before you become a free agent where the players are trying to go down as far as four. I'm sure five is what they're really going to look at, but even as low as four years, so they could cut out one or two arbitration years off the top. So you figure if a player comes in a rookie year, okay, they got the rookie deal, second year, and then starting that third year, you're going to have to worry about whether or not you have to trade this piece because after the fourth year, they're going to file for free agency. Chances are it's probably going to be five. But these are some of the discussions that have been brought to the table here. And as we've seen here most recently to where the owners have thought of the bright idea to bring in a federal mediator to not really settle or have any type of influence on being a part of hammering out this deal. But just there to guide it, just there to not necessarily find a solution, but maybe get that path to recovery to say, hey guys, how about we start looking at this? How about we start looking at that? Now, of course, you two have to agree upon it, but I just want to get the ball rolling here. To what the players have said, "Uh uh-uh. Rejected it right on the spot. And then when you have players coming out like Max Scherzer, where he says that all the players, and I quote, want a system where the threshold and penalties don't function as caps, allowing players to realize more of their market value, make service time manipulations a thing of the past, and eliminate tanking as a winning strategy. 
Well, forget about the tanking part. I mean, really, are baseball players tanking at this day and age? It's not the NFL to where if a team already starts off 1-7, and seven, you're thinking, oh, forget about it. Let's punt the rest of the season away. And I understand that if you're in Pittsburgh or if you're in Kansas City or even in Colorado that you're out of the running for a pennant race by the 4th of July, you're pretty much saying sayonara. But again, July in the baseball season is different from November in an NFL season. Because it's one game a week, it's really two months, where baseball, you still have to play it out through July, through August, September. And it's not as if you're seeing these players, you know, throwing games, you know, throwing balls in the dirt or striking out on purpose. The integrity of the game is not being hurt in that regard. So you can forget about that. But this is the player's stance right here. So now it's up to the owners to come out and take their stance. But now here is the issue, and there are two of them. Here's the issue that the owners are going to have to look in the mirror to say, we may have to rethink this thing when it comes to the players. One, the last couple of negotiations, the owners made out like bandits. So you know what? They're going to have to give back a little bit here to the players. I know they're not going to try to give an inch, let alone a mile, but they're going to have to give them something. They just can't look at, oh, well, this is what we want. And if that's what you are asking for or whatever, uh uh-uh, we're not going to capitulate by any way shape or form sadly they're gonna have to here because if they don't and I'm not trying to say that they have to kowtow or be on bended knee to the players but they're gonna have to be a little for I don't want to say forgiving but they're gonna have to be a little resilient here they're gonna have to say all right well we'll have to give them some of this in order for them to get a season underway So that's the first thing. But the second thing, and more importantly, the owners cried wolf in 2020 about them not making enough money. And obviously they had no gate. Everything came out of their pocket. They lost a fortune, understandably so. And they also did the first couple of months of this last year in 2021. So as the ballpark started to fill up and they were able to generate revenue, They're fine. The owners are going to have to, I hate to say it, they're going to have to work with the players in order to have this agreement be signed on the dotted line much sooner than later because if their ballparks are empty come April 1st, April 10th, April 20th, yeah, the players will hurt, but the owners are going to hurt even more. And this is based on what happened two years ago and at the start of last year. So they're going to come out like losers big time. And here's the other thing that they have to worry about on top of that. And this is probably number three. I get it that if they miss the first week of the season, they'll make up the games with double headers, etc. Understood. But if by any chance that this season is 125 games, 146 games, even 154 games, like the old schedule before 1961... They will lose fans and jump off the baseball ship faster than you could say collective bargaining agreement because the baseball fan in this country is dwindling by the thousands and in the seconds. A guy like me will always be there. Baseball is my first sport. It's my favorite sport. I'll always be there. But for the 30-year-old, the 20-year-old, the teen, maybe even the boy, and with the influence of their parents and everything that's going on in the world with streaming and internet and 
technology as it is with so much other attention that could be generated and garnered elsewhere, the baseball fan will say, see ya. I don't want to be a part of this. The owners are greedy. The players are greedy. Uh Uh-uh. I'll take my attention and my fandom elsewhere. And they'll jump ship in a snap. And baseball may not recover from that. Because we could talk about the strike in 94, but that was 28 years ago. That was a while. So the 15-year-old, the 25-year-old, even the 32-year-old can't relate to that. But those are the fans they're trying to get now. So if the owners don't come to their agreement, or at least come down a couple of notches to meet up with the players, to therefore not have a regular season start on time, and then if it doesn't start on time, where it's up, it's 144 games, the fans are going to say, I'm out of here. You could take your nine innings MLB package and shove it up your rear end, and that's where baseball could be in the wilderness when it comes to this. And then the ironic thing, when it comes to the fan, I got to throw this in there too, before I move on. The ironic thing is because the fan will say goodbye to baseball because of greed. But guess what? That's the same fan that watches the NFL, which is the epitome and definition of greed because of a 17-game schedule, because of seven playoff teams in each conference, a Monday night playoff game in the wild card round, and they worry about ratings. As we all know, the Super Bowl could be played Wednesday, 3.30 in the morning in Siberia. And 100 million people will watch in a heartbeat. So those same fans that will look at baseball as being greedy, take a look at the NFL before you throw stones in glass houses. And I get it. The fan is a consumer. They can do whatever they want. And I'm not trying to knock the... Baseball fan, if they jump ship, that's their right. But if greed is going to be the big issue, all you got to do is look at the NFL. Because no one bats an eyelash when it comes to the shield. No one. And you know, I've talked about it ad infinitum. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. So baseball, they're going to be in for it. And I said it, if they don't come to an agreement by March 1st, maybe the latest they could get away with it is March 10th. Because then you got to wait for a week for players to report. And you're probably going to have a handful of exhibition games. But then you got to jumpstart these pitchers. And it's not to say they're not working out now. But it's, it's just a gigantic mess. To be safe, you would think March 7th is the deadline if they're going to start a season on time. Because could you imagine no exhibition games, no extended spring training that we normally see. How these games are going to be played in early April especially when it's 40 degrees in the Northeast. It's going to be an abomination, a nightmare. Ah. Let me move on. Uh, A couple other quick things. College basketball, I know I hadn't touched on it last week, and this week looks like it's going to be pretty much the same. Auburn is now your number one team in the nation, and they signed Bruce Pearl to pretty much a lifetime contract. So we'll see if Auburn could duplicate their success of what they did a couple of years ago in winning the national title as they're the number one team in the country. Followed that two through five, and of course I'll go through the whole top 10. But second on that list is Gonzaga, as they've played a little bit better here as of late. UCLA, Purdue, Kentucky round up the top five, and then Houston, Arizona, Baylor, Duke, and Kansas. And Duke wins in North Carolina. Of course, not the same NC team as we saw in teams past. And of course, no Roy Williams. You had Hubert Davis there, but that was the last time Coach K 
had coached down there, right up the road there for the Blue Devils against the Tar Heels. As you'll see, Duke play North Carolina in the final Sunday of the regular season in college basketball. So we'll be sure to pay attention to that once we get past the football season. And as far as the Olympics people, I'm sorry, I have nothing to say about that. I really don't. So let's get right to it. My hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week goes out to Robin Herman, who was a reporter for the New York Times back in the 70s and was the first female journalist to interview players in the locker room in the NHL as she was a reporter for the New York Islanders. She passed away this past week at the age of 70 due to ovarian cancer. So here's someone who, let's face it, is a trailblazer. And was someone that wasn't even on my radar as of this week. And that's a bad job on my part because when you think of a woman reporter, of course, the one that comes to mind, you think of Lisa Olsen. You think of, there's so many others, but Olsen being the one. And of course, she was part of a controversy there with the Patriots and that whole scenario back in the 80s or the late 80s. But Robin Herman, again, female journalist, 1970s. I get it's the NHL. It wasn't Major League Baseball, which was huge at that time, or the NBA, or even the NFL, but for her to be that trailblazer, she definitely deserves her bouquets, and sadly has passed away, so thoughts, prayers, condolences go out to her and her family. She is my hero of the week, and my zero of the week goes out to Mac Etienne, a redshirt freshman forward on UCLA's men's basketball team, was arrested and even cited for assault after appearing to spit at Arizona fans following the Bruins' 76-66 loss to the Wildcats there on Thursday night. And you see in the video, I mean, it's not a close-up, but for him to walk off, and I get it, he's what, an 18-year-old kid, and somebody got in his ear, and of course, that was his way to fight back. He should have known better. What are you doing spitting? Uh, Just put your head down, just block it off, and just walk into the locker room. Not a good look. So Mac. I understand you're a red shirt, you're paying your dues, etc. But you, my guy, are my zero of the week. And that'll do it. Episode 237, just about in the books. As always, in closing, a big thanks for your continued and unwavered support. Just like I said at the top, I sincerely appreciate you taking the time out. And certainly don't take it for granted for you downloading, streaming, listening to this podcast. I'm sure you get your info from other sources and rightfully so, but for you to stop by here, I am sincerely thankful and grateful for your participation. And speaking of which, if you could do so, like I said at the top, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Throw me a few stars, write a review, post it on social media, take a screenshot, send it to me. I'll be sure to get it out because with your help in getting the word out about this podcast, It's going to increase the visibility with all the others that are out there and trying to generate interest with outside guests to be a part of this podcast. And that is my sole main focus to get myself out there. And again, if you could just please do that, I would be very thankful for your support in that regard. If you want to hit me up with any questions, comments, criticism, even some praise if you'd like, you could do so at the following social media accounts on Instagram, J Reels, or the J Reels Podcast. On Twitter, J Reels One, just the number. On Facebook, the J Reels Podcast fan page. And then the old fashioned way, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Please forward that to me and I'll be more than happy to follow up. 
And then lastly, if you want to contribute to the podcast and this endeavor, you could do so by going to www.patreon.com slash the Reels Podcast. That's P is in Paul, A-T is in Tom, R-E-O-N is in Nancy. What that does will go 100% toward the upkeep of the production of this podcast, whether it be the website, the equipment, everything that entails to have my voice be heard loud and clear to your speakers or earbuds week in and week out, God willing, bi-weekly as time goes on because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to do, people. I've been doing this for now almost four years. Come March 1st, I'll have my fourth anniversary in doing this podcast and I plan to go nowhere because I love to get into my thoughts, my opinions, feelings on everything that's happening in the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, octagon, boxing ring, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>